Chapter thirty seven of Just as I Am. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Just as I Am by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter thirty seven. I must bide my time. Mr. Jebb put his hand into the cavity where the seven bottles of whisky had been and groped among the sawdust and cobwebs, not with the hope of making any discovery but in utter helplessness and bewilderment. Suddenly, as his hand explored the brickwork, a new and awful light flashed on his mind. Four or five of the bricks had been loosened and removed, and put back again in their places. They yielded to his touch. He pulled them out one by one, and beheld a gap through which the robber could easily have put his hand and pulled out the bottles. The whole thing was clear. The theft had been but too easy. The cellar wall backed upon the stable yard, and anybody in that yard could have removed the bricks. It must have been a work of time, a work to be done under cover of night and darkness, for it had to be so neatly done as to escape the master's eye. Who could have done this but the characterless groom, the waif, whose sodden appearance had impressed Mr. Jebb in the first instance, but to whose vices he had been willingly blind when he found that the man suited his purpose? Mr. Jebb had not a doubt as to Tinker's guilt. He rushed out of the cellar, locking the door hurriedly. Alas! what availed lock or bolt when his wall had been violated? He hurried by the back door to the stable-yard, heedless of the rain which fell upon his uncovered head, and unearthed Tinker in his shed among the empty bottles, harness, and boots. The man smelt of whisky. Yes, the wretch reeked with the evidence of his crime. He had taken advantage of a wet afternoon to leave his harness uncleaned. He sat nodding over a newspaper, with an empty mug beside him and mug and man alike sent forth the odour of choicest glenlivet you villain cried shafto what have you done with those seven bottles of whisky you thief you undermining vagabond you you guy forks get out of my place be gone or i'll give you in charge for burglary by heavens i'd do it if i were not ashamed of my own folly in harbouring such a scoundrel tinker at first denied his guilt then grew sullen grumbled an oath or two collected his few rags in a bundle and walked out of the yard mr jebb escorting him but on the threshold he stopped snapped his fingers in the face of his late employer and exclaimed do you think i want your beggarly place i can get a better in an hour if i ask for it sir everard courtney will take me i'll warrant he wouldn't dare to refuse knowing what i know the man was tolerably far gone in whisky drunk enough to be reckless sober enough to know what he was saying upon shafto jebb's ear the man's speech fell unheeded his brain was fired by his great wrong and he could think of nothing else seven bottles of that splendid whisky the gift of a friend who was not likely to be again so generous and to think that this wretch, by loosening a few crumbling old red bricks, had been able to get at the very spot in which Mr. Jebb had so carefully bestowed the choicest treasure of his cellar. The thing was fiendish. "'Get out of the place!' he roared, "'or I'll kick you out!' "'Not without my week's wages,' said the man. 
you may whistle for your wages you've had seven bottles of my choicest whisky and heaven knows what besides get out you housebreaking vampire the man walked sulkily away and turning to go back to his violated cellar in order to see how the brickwork could be most speedily made solid and secure mr jebb found himself face to face with jane barnard oh if you please sir my mistress sent me out with your coat and hat and will you go in directly she says for fear of adding to your cold hang my cold cried shafto savagely i want a bricklayer a bricklayer sir yes woman a bricklayer to wall up a cellar run down the village and tell dubs the builder to send me his man directly with a few new bricks and a hod of mortar mrs barnard did not wait to be bidden twice there was a fine drizzling rain falling and she had no covering on her neat sleek head except the little muslin cap which was her badge of servitude but she ran out of the yard as fast as her active feet could carry her and once outside stopped and looked about her there stood the dismissed drudge leaning against the palings of a cottage garden a little way down the road despondently contemplative of a litter of black pigs which were walking up and down the prostrate form of their female parent as coolly as if she had been a grassy hillside mrs barnard had to pass the man on her way to the builders and even if mr jebb had been watching her which he was not it would scarcely have seemed strange that she should linger for half a minute to speak to him i want a few minutes talk with you she said it will be for your advantage meet me at nine o'clock to-night in the lane behind the homestead oh, you don't mean no harm again poor old tinker what harm should i mean haven't i always been kind to you oh you have whimpered the maudlin wretch exhaling whisky you're the right sort and i'll trust you nine o'clock i'll be there i'll take a nap in old hazel's haystack between whiles farmer hazel's rickyard was close to the surgeon's untidy kitchen garden the homestead having once been the dwelling-house attached to farmer hazel's land tinker seemed in earnest and mrs barnard was fain to believe him and to go on with her day's work waiting anxiously for nine o'clock by which hour the children would be in bed and the nurse might count upon a brief interval of freedom the rain had ceased after dark and when mrs barnard went out to keep her appointment the sky had cleared and a few stars were shining through the grey she told the cook she was going up the village to get some darning cotton at the shop knowing that as in a general way half an hour's gossip accompanied the smallest transaction at that compendious repository she might be out for some time without exciting wonder by her absence she went down the narrow cinder path between the gooseberry and currant bushes and rank overgrown onions and let herself out by a little gate at the bottom of the garden which opened into a narrow lane between the homestead and farmer hazel's rickyard a little way down this lane stood the broad five-barred gate leading into the rickyard and on the top rail sat a slouching figure which mrs barnard knew must be that of the dismissed groom he had slept off his intoxication and was now in a somewhat morose and depressed condition the outlook before him being far from hopeful well mrs nurse he grumbled as jane barnard approached him here i am a dancing attendance upon your ladyship's pleasure yet i don't suppose you'll give me the price of a night's lodging oh there you are mistaken said jane cheerfully 
I'm not quite so hard-hearted as you think. I'm a poor working woman, but as far as half a sovereign goes... Half a quid, cried Tinker. Oh, you're a duchess. Make it a whole one and I'll say you're a regular trump. If you'll tell me what I want to know, speaking the truth fully and frankly, I'll give you a sovereign for your trouble, and I'd do so even if it were the last coin I had in the world. When you were leaving the yard this afternoon, you spoke of Sir Everard Courtney. You spoke as if you knew something, something of his past history which he would not like everybody to know. The man was still seated on the gate, his shrunken figure bent nearly double, a short clay pipe in the corner of his mouth, from which he slowly sent forth a puff of rank tobacco now and then. Mrs. Barnard stood close to him, holding the gate, speaking in a low, earnest voice. The wind had risen since the rain had ceased, and the tall poplars in the hedgerow were rustling and creaking with a monotonous ebb and flow of sound, which prevented Mrs. Barnard or her companion hearing another sound near at hand, the fall of a stealthy footstep on the other side of the tangled blackberry hedge which screened Mr. Jebb's kitchen garden from the vulgar gaze. The footsteps travelled slowly along the weedy path inside the hedge, and came to a dead stop just opposite the gate on which Tinker had perched himself. "'I'm not going to tell you what I know about him,' said Tinker in a sullen tone. "'A quid, indeed. I should want forty quids. Do you suppose I couldn't turn my knowledge to better account with the baronite himself?' "'I'm sure you couldn't.' "'Huh? Why?' "'Because if you'd been able to make money out of him in all these years, you'd have done it.' "'What do you mean by all these years?' asked Tinker, in tones of increasing surliness. "'I mean that whatever knowledge you have about Sir Everard Courtney is knowledge that came to you twenty years ago last October.' The man flinched, and looked at the speaker sharply from under his shaggy brows, and that if you could have traded upon it in the meanwhile, you would have traded upon it. You're not the man to neglect a chance of that kind. Tinker gave an inward chuckle. <laughs> You're about right, he said. I should have screwed him uncommon tight if it hadn't been in his power to screw me. Oh, but I'll screw him yet, proud devil. I've got so low down that I'm pretty nigh as reckless as that man Vargas and though I won't go so far as to put my neck in a noose, I might risk being a lifer if I could put a rope round that stiff neck of his. "'Do it!' cried Jane Barnard, tremulous with excitement, and clutching the man's bony wrist with her nervous hand. "'Do it! I'll help you. Shall I tell you who I am? Yes, I will. And then perhaps you'll trust me and help me. I'm Humphrey Vargas's daughter.' I want to prove that it was not he who murdered Mr. Blake. I want to clear his name of that crime, if I can, for the sake of my children. Or else when they grow up to be men and women, and are working their way honestly in the world, to the front rank, perhaps, for they live in a free country where there's nothing to keep them back, people will be able to bring it up against them that their grandfather was a murderer. I want to find the real murderer. I know who he is, and you know, and I believe Mr. Jebb knows, but it's only I that would risk my life to prove it. Hmph, muttered the vagabond, looking at her curiously, as if such intensity of purpose were inexplicable to his jaded soul. You're a rummun. 
supposing i could help you to bring the murder home to the right party supposing it should suit my temper to stand up in a witness-box and tell what i know what would you give me for the risk i ran my husband is in a small way of business working hard for every dollar he earns but if your evidence can clear my father's name of the stain of murder i will give you a hundred pounds oh, how can i be sure of the money your husband's in america when i've done what you want i may whistle for my reward what security can you give me jane barnard was silent this question which seemed a natural one for the man to ask was a difficult one for her to answer what security could she offer a stranger in that land she could think of only one person who would be likely to help her in this matter and that was morton blake but even of his help she could not be certain for heretofore he had been deaf to her pleading yet could she but offer him evidence of her father's innocence he could hardly refuse to help her might he not be more ready to do so now that the tie between him and miss courtenay was broken if mr blake were willing to be my security said jane barnard would you believe me then i believe him grumbled the man he's good for a hundred pound you bring him to me at any place appointed and let him give his word to pay me a cool hundred the day i give my evidence against sir everard courtenay and i don't mind risking the witness-box for it is a risk to me as things might be brought up again me by people with plaguy long memories but if i once get clean out of the court and my hundred down i'd soon be clean out of the country and i should like to have a shy at sir everard before i kick the bucket he was a trifle too high-handed with me twenty years ago and i was a fool to take things as quietly as i did i'll try to see morton blake to-morrow said mrs barnard and if your evidence is really worth having worth having cried tinker who by recalling past injuries which had rankled in his mind for years had worked himself into a feverish condition why my evidence can prove that on the night of the murder sir everard courtenay a gentleman that was always regular and orderly in his habits always one of the earliest to come home from the hunt never being more than a half-hearted sportsman he didn't get home till nine o'clock and they'd killed their fox not six mile from osthorpe at five mind you and rode into the stable-yard all over mud with his horse dead beaten dead lame and cut about as i have never seen any horse of his cut since i'd been second groom at fairview oh said mrs barnard then you were in his service at the time of course i was answered tinker how should i have known anything about it if i wasn't i was in the yard when he came in waiting to take his horse for the head groom had ridden off to highclere to get another doctor for my lady who was lying dangerously ill he was as pale as a ghost and he just got off his horse and chucked the bridle to me and walked indoors without a word i noticed that he'd lost one of his spurs but i didn't think much about that it was his looks and the horse's condition that took my attention mm, there's bad news for you indoors says i to myself and you look bad enough already just as if you knew what was coming it was about an hour after when the groom came back driving the high clear doctor in sir everard's dog-cart they'd passed the place where mr blake had been found and had heard all about the murder 
did not the head groom or anyone else in the house make any remark about sir everard's being out so unusually late asked mrs barnard i don't know that anybody did you see the whole house was upset about my lady she was lying at death's door poor thing and nobody could think of anything or anybody else before the clock struck twelve she was dead and osthorpe bell that had been tolling for mr blake began to toll for her oh, that night was a fine harvest for the sexton did you see sir everard next day asked mrs barnard no he was shut up in the room with his dead wife they say he hardly left her till her coffin was carried out of the house early next morning pretty nigh as soon as it was light i was at the place where the murder was done i knew the spot by what jake the groom had told me close against the pollard oak and there were the footprints of the men who had carried away the body and the grass all trampled and beaten where the corpse had been dragged out of the ditch i don't know what made me grope about and examine the place for there wasn't much to see idle curiosity i suppose but the more i hung about the spot the muddy ditch and the broken edge above it and the bank with the footprints of a horse sharpened off by a light morning frost the more i had sir everard and his white face and his hunter all over muck and mire in my mind i couldn't give over puzzling myself why he should have been out so late on that particular night and why he should have come home in such a state him as was one of the neatest of riders and used to bring his horse home as fresh as paint i stood loitering about like smoking my morning pipe and looking at the place when all at once i spied something glittering in the thick brambly edge just below the ragged gap that showed where a horse had been over it oh, what could it be some of the plunder which the murderer had pitched there in his haste to be off a pencil case or a silver whistle i thought oh, nothing much or the fellow would have nobbled it well i sprang across the ditch and scrambled up the bank and parted the brambles and there i found a spur stuck fast with one of the straps and buckles hanging to it just as it had been torn off as the horse broke through the hedge it was a tough blackthorn branch that had done it i knew the spur for sir everard's by the make of it and i should have known it for his anywhere even if i hadn't noticed the missing spur as he walked across the yard overnight i put it into my pocket and jumped back into the road just as the police constable and his pal came up to search the place oh but i didn't say a word to either of them as to what i'd found oh pretty clear where you was last night sir everard and what you was doing says i to myself you gentlefolks gives way to your evil passions just as often as the poorest of us though all the catechism books teaches us different did you tell anyone what you'd found asked jane barnard no i kept turning the old business over in my mind for i wanted to find the way as i could best make my own account of it if i was to up and tell everything at the inquest what should i be the better off for my evidence not a mag i might put a rope round sir everard's neck but that wouldn't put a coat on my back or give me a dinner my lay was to keep dark and get all i could out of sir everard i've got you under my thumb i said to myself and i'll make you pay the piper ay and i'll make him pay yet 
he added with a savage chuckle though the reckoning has been put off above twenty years how was it you failed to make him pay for your silence then asked mrs barnard never you mind that's my business perhaps i didn't manage the affair as well as i might have done perhaps i carried things a trifle too high and was too cocksure of his knocking under and bleeding freely anyhow he rounded upon me and instead of having him in my power i found it was me that was under his thumb and instead of getting a handsome price for my secret i got kicked out like a dog and had to choose between cutting my lucky or getting into quad there'd been a trifle of picking and stealing in the stables you see and i was in it as well as the rest perhaps i was in a little deeper than the rest and the upshot was that i found myself without a place and without a character and with my gentleman's odd spur for my only portable property well i was a careless roving kind of dog in those days and i didn't much mind where i went as long as i had snug quarters and good grub so i didn't feel getting the sack and i thought i'd bide my time i went into leicestershire and got a berth in a hunting stable for when a man can handle a horse as i could in those days and is a smartish chap to look at into the bargain character don't go for much i told lord bullfinch's stud groom as i'd had a row with my master and had got kicked out for cheeking him and i was took on without another question and for the next ten years my life was pleasant enough always falling on my feet somehow but i never was the kind of chap to save money and by and by things began to go dead again me and then it was all downhill never no change in my luck except from bad to worse till the day your governor found me hanging about the yard of the peacock glad to earn a few pence for a night's shelter or a mouthful of spirits to keep the rheumatics out of my wretched old bones and in all the days of your poverty did you never appeal to sir everard oh didn't i just i wrote to him when i was hard up pitching it very humble you know and saying that though i knew facts connected with mr blake's death as might be inconvenient for him to have bandied about i was the last of men to make use of my knowledge but that i was in an awful fix for a ten pound note and must get it some ways or other oh at first he was civil and used to send me the money but without a word just as you'd throw a dog a bone then one day there comes a letter from his valet to say that sir everard having been lately imposed upon by various begging letter writers had made up his mind to take no further notice of any such appeals and that if i wrote again he would place the matter in the hands of the police <laughs> rough upon me wasn't it well i didn't write again but i contrived one day to waylay my gentleman just as he was leaving the town hall at highclere after a magistrate's meeting he looked uncommon proud and uncommon handsome as he came out of the hall with his figure well set up and his head held high swinging a heavy cane hunting crop as he walked along he'd left his horse at the peacock and it was in the narrow lane that leads from the town hall to the market-place a short cut don't you know i accosted him i'd followed him into the lane and it seemed a nice retired spot for me to say what i had to say well there's no need to go into our conversation instead of giving me a civil answer he turned upon me like a devil clutched me by the collar and get me into the angle of a wall where i had no more power to fight him than if i'd been a baby 
he belaboured me with his hunting crop till there was hardly enough life in me to shriek murder he threatened that if ever i dared to address him again he'd beat me in the same way he laughed at what he called my impudent pretence of knowing something that might injure him if it were known to all the world oh of course there was no policeman on the scene till my gentleman had gone and there was i with every bone aching to get my revenge as best i might take out a summons against him for assault and battery says the constable ah yes but where's the witness to prove my case says i what would have been the good of my taking my poor old bones before a magistrate to swear the peace against such a fine gentleman as sir everard courtney no my man says i it's a case of grin and bear it i must bide my time the church clock chimed the half hour i must get back to the house said mrs barnard there's the tray to be taken into the parlour for mr jebb's grog it was the surgeon's custom to comfort himself before going to bed with the light refreshment of a glass of gin and water and a biscuit or two jane barnard brought out a well-worn leather purse from which she extracted some silver here are five shillings she said get yourself a supper and a bed at the sugar-loaves and meet me at three o'clock to-morrow afternoon on tangley common just in front of the manor-house gates i shall have seen mr blake most likely by that time and shall know what is the best way of going to work the man turned the shillings over in his palm with a dissatisfied air you said you was going to stand a quid he muttered five bob ain't much after waiting your convenience all these blessed hours it's more than enough to get you a supper a bed and a breakfast answered jane firmly if you don't waste any of it on drink if i were to give you more you'd go muddling your brains with spirits and i want you to have all your wits about you to-morrow remember i mean to carry this business through so do i answered the man but i must be paid for my trouble i shall expect a pound or two from you to-morrow mind you shall have it good night good night growled tinker mrs barnard ran back to the house and began bustling about the kitchen getting her tray ready the kettle was boiling on the hob ready for the evening potations well if you haven't stopped gossiping above a bit exclaimed the cook looking up from a greasy copy of last week's news of the world where she'd been spelling out a diabolical murder in whitechapel you must have found mrs simcox uncommon pleasant what was you talking about oh old times answered jane briefly she carried the tray and tea-kettle to the family sitting-room but to her surprise mr jebb whom she had last seen ensconced in his armchair with his feet on the fender and a cashmere shawl tied round his head was no longer there has master been sent for ma'am she asked of the patient wife who sat at her penelope task of darning stockings which her active children trampled into holes as fast as she mended them no jane i didn't hear of anybody calling for him he went into the surgery a little while ago to make up some medicine and i dare say he's there now mrs barnard opened the surgery door and peeped in the oil lamp was burning low on the counter where mr jebb pounded his drugs and rolled out his pills and the room was empty he's not there ma'am said jane oh then i suppose somebody sent for him i thought i heard the door shut half an hour ago and now he will go increasing his cold and he's so cross when he has one of those influenza colds 
do you see if his coat and hat are gone off the peg jane yes ma'am they're gone i wonder who could have wanted him he told me this afternoon he wouldn't budge for anybody but the loss of that whisky made him quite wild i never saw him so put out since i can remember and then he stood in the rain ever so long watching the bricklayer mend the wall i'm afraid he'll be ill mrs barnard was too full of her own thoughts to be properly sympathetic she stirred the fire swept the hearth set the tray in its proper place keeping silence all the while then just as she was going to leave the room she said oh if you please ma'am could you let me have a couple of hours to myself to-morrow i want to go out for a little after the early dinner well yes jane i suppose i must spare you End of chapter 37